Merry Christmas, dear listener from Heather at Wiggly Wigglers. Happy Christmas, everybody, from Richard. And happy Christmas from Farmer Phil. And we've got a present in our studio today. Are you going to talk about that? Our newly refurbished studio. Yes. This is our studio. We're back on the Wiggly Sofa. It's nice to be back in this room. It's a much lighter room now, isn't it? Warm. And the difference in the sound will be the wooden floor. Farmer Phil, would you like to get your present from Richard? Well, I'm really very touched that Ricardo has actually come good in all the years I've known him, the miserable so-and-so, and now he's embarrassed me by... He's, he's taken a photo <laughs> that I took in Tennessee of some trees. Mm. And it sounds suitably boring for me. And he's put it in a really nice U frame for me. And it looks great. Oh, mm. Did you make the frame, Rich? He has a deal. He, he's he's made right. an inscription on the back for right. me. Right, let's uh, let, let, let Richard read it out. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I, I I say, he shouldn't, I mean, this is interesting, isn't it? Because I, I, I didn't bring this in today to talk about it on a podcast. But, no, well. but nonetheless, it says, uh, what did I write for Farmer Phil? This is something that we... we <laughs> <laughs> we said off off air last week who and I quote never gets the respect he deserves <laughs> unquote from your audio sparring partner and I put it here made from English U from Titley Court in Herefordshire so this is timber that was felled by my godfather from Titley Court which is a beautiful court next to one of the best restaurants in the whole of the UK I reckon the stag at Titley very Fantastic. nice um, very and, uh, nice I don't think Michael Michael doesn't agree with that but it's, uh, it <laughs> I think it's an excellent It's a fantastic restaurant. eatery, yeah, yeah, it is superb. Quality food and not ludicrous design. You're, you're Tell good, us about you. So this, uh, Sarah so this, likes the stag at Titley, doesn't she, Rich? She does. Sarah loves the stag at Titley. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she does. And I, I And you'll be taking her <laughs> there. I'm to take her there all the time. Tell us about you. Oh, this you. Well, this is um, it's very old. I think this is probably from a tree that's at least 400 years old. They had to take it down. So uh, it's been, I've had this you for about eight years, I think. And it's been seasoning quietly because I've been so busy doing other things like renovating my house. I haven't got around to doing things like picture framing. So is you a hardwood? Type? Yeah, it is. It is. A, it is a hardwood. It's it's very old. In the old days, I mean, you see them in churchyards and things a lot of the time. I think we may have talked about you before a little bit on the podcast. I think one of the reasons it was put in churchyards is so that it had some sort of protection because in the old days, in the medieval days, they used to use you for making bows. They make fantastic bows because it's very strong, um, but it's also quite flexible. It has elasticity. It's kind of close-grained wood. It's, it's interesting stuff to work with. It's not. Um, it, it, it is hard. It does blunt to your tools much faster than some of the soft woods. But it's a beautiful wood and has lovely colour. This is a heartwood. Often you'll see you, and it'll be some of the sapwood. That is the stuff on the outside of the tree. It's very white, and you have sometimes you have fantastic contrast between the white and the red. But with picture frames, sometimes it's quite nice just to have the one colour. Because what you don't want to do, whilst you want the frame to look beautiful, you don't want to detract from the quality of the photograph. Well, good effort, mm. Ricardo. Thank you very much, Ricardo. You know, it's my pleasure. Well, you know, the reason I gave you this, Phil, is because I knew uh, that it's, uh, you know, I, it's, it's nice to do things like this for people that appreciate things. And I knew that you would be genuinely touched. So it's my pleasure, Phil. Ah. Yeah! <laughs> oh. Do you know, listener, picture the scene. They're now gently hugging um, in front of the fireplace. <laughs> There's a tear in Richie's eye. You've got no soul if you have at all. You really haven't got any soul. You're, you're just a hard-nosed <laughs> businesswoman. <laughs> OK, we've got some facts coming up on sage and onion. 
because I thought it's Christmas, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. We've got some greetings from the Wiggly Wigglers team, and we've got a little blue tongue update from Farmer Phil. And will we, or won't we, talk about Bill Oddie? Now it'll go. Doo -doo 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 -doo. <laughs> Knowing your onions, that's what we need to know. We need to know our onions because it's Christmas and there's nothing better than sage and onion stuffing, not Paxo. Sage and onion stuffing, homemade, absolutely scrummy. So I thought we should go in the right order and talk about sage and onions. So we're going to onions first. Excellent. Now, um, I know you used to grow onions, Phil. You yeah. used to farm onions. You are an onion farmer. I used to work on a farm in Cambridgeshire, which is up from London and right a bit, for those of you who don't know where Cambridgeshire is. There you are, Patrice. And we had land in the fens there, which is black peat land, dead flat. Some of it's below sea level. It was drained in the early part of the 1900s and is very fertile, but also very fragile landscape. But we used to grow onions, similar to growing potatoes, lift them with a potato harvester, dry them in a bulk store, and then all winter we'd spend grading them so you take all the rubbish off the tops off and so on and all the old boys in the, on the farm used to say that this process you would either love onions forever more or you would never eat another one because there are a few things worse than a rotten onion and obviously every so often a rot turns up but I'm one of the ones who falls into the former category can't get enough of them we used to eat onions every bake time on every sandwich raw onions with everything Absolutely and were fantastic. they those really strong ones that make you cry English or? onions are a different ball game to imported onions grown with a lot of irrigation in sand they're much stronger absolutely fantastic and you things. like this do you absolutely because i like those watery gentle things oh no you feel yeah. cleansed when you eat a really strong <laughs> onion <laughs> now people say don't they rich that it's not worth growing onions if you've got a tiny garden yeah because they aren't they're not very expensive to buy are they the only onions i ever grow are the red ones the red barren onions they're and lovely, they've got a lot more they? flavour than, than white onions anyway. And they're nice, strong, lots of flavour and stuff. They're a bit sweeter than white onions, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, they are a little bit sweeter. But they do have a little bit more flavour and a little bit more character. Nicer looking, of course. And they're great in a, a, cheese, and, uh, a cheese and onion sandwich in a, in a pita bread or something like that. Gorgeous. Pita bread? Mm, oh, nice. I would have gone for a nice stone-ground loaf. There you are. <laughs> now, what about when do you plant them? And why are they called set? Well, the sets are like little baby onions, really. So they've been grown from seed and then they've been plucked out of the ground or propagators or wherever they've been grown and dried, so quite literally set. And then you can buy those little sets. You can buy a bag of sets, I don't know, probably 100 onions for a quid or something like that, and then very cheap. And then you just pop them in the ground and away to go. So you put those out. Well, you can put them out as early as February, but chances are they won't really start to grow until March anyway put them in the ground, cover them with a little tiny bit of soil. I try, what I try to do with mine is cover the tops because the birds always land on there and pluck them out of the ground. But you don't want to bury them in the ground. Just cover them for a little bit of protection and off they go. If you want to grow them with seed, then you can sow your onions around about January time under a propagator in a windowsill. And then when they get to a reasonable size, you quite literally transplant them into, a, into their own little individual pots and then 
when they get a little bit bigger, you can plant them out into the garden and off to go. My onions, I got them in and tied them up on a piece of string and put them in the larder. Yep. And all was going quite well. Uh -huh. So I ate loads of them and then flies appeared and they sort of rotted. All right. So what did I do wrong? They might have not been dried enough before you put them in there. When you harvest your onions, you should pluck them out of the ground. And you'll kind of harvest them, I suppose, um, August time, I guess, late July, August time. You pluck them out of the ground, and then the best thing to do is either leave them on the top of the ground, let lots of sunlight get to them, sunshine, and dry them out. Or if you've got an old bedstead or something like that, you know, some old mesh wire, put them on there so the air can circulate around them, and make sure they're thoroughly dry before you store them. That goes for anything like squashes and pumpkins and things like that that you want to store over the winter time. And are they best stored in the dark? Onions, no, they don't need to be stored in the dark at all. They just need to be dry. It tends to be that you can often store them in places in the dark or out of sight or whatever. We, we leave ours hanging up um, in, off the beams in the porch. So they've got plenty of air circulating around them all the time and they're absolutely fine. But that is key, is to make sure that they're very dry before you store them. Absolutely. The reason ours, I think, went wrong was, of course, late summer, it was chucking it down with rain, if you remember. Yeah. And we had very few really good drying days after they were pulled. We used to windrow them on the farm and leave them in a windrow to dry and then pick the windrow up. What interesting Pick the what up? Windrow, so you lift them out of the ground and put them in a row so that they're in a, in a, a sort of long, thin Thump. row on the surface of the ground, if you like. Right. Um, called a windrow. Let them dry like that and then pick that windrow up and put them in a shed where we can blow air through them to dry them finally. What interested me about what you were saying, Rich, was we used to grow different varieties, and we got winter varieties and spring varieties, so that some we could plant in the autumn with the idea of getting some earlier yeah. harvesting. Yeah, it's a good um, idea. And they must have been pretty hardy, because one of the features of the weather in the fens is that it is seriously cold. Right, it like is. Like brass monkeys, vitals and what have It's you. so flat, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's the wind as it whips across there is something else. Yeah, I'm intrigued that you used to work over there, though, because that's a little part, a part of your past that I didn't know anything about. In fact, I didn't know that you worked at all anywhere. Oh, thank you, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a long story, but to cut, cut it very short, when, when I was a child, we had a student, or father had a student for a year, who came from Cambridgeshire, and part of the deal was that in due course, when I was a student looking for a year's placement, I would go back. Uh, okay. And so I went back to Anthony Morby's farm over at Stuntney, which is a little hill just outside Ely, which is another little hill, because it's so flat, all the buildings are on little outcrops of clay that stick up through the peat. To you and me, they're not hills at all, they're just sort of gentle bumps. There's great history attached to them, and for a number of reasons. We used to plough up Roman remains. Peat shrinks over a period of time, which is what I meant when I said it was fragile, uh -huh. that it's not a sustainable farming operation to farm peat arably because it just disappears. Yeah. But as you go down, things that were either buried in it or left in it start to come to the surface. So that might be bog oaks. It might be World War II bombs that planes dropped to get rid of them prior to going back to Germany. Right. And they were exciting when you ploughed those up yeah, because yeah. you did, really didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. And on one occasion, they discovered a Roman coffin and it was absolutely intact and really? is now, I believe, in the museum in Ely. They used to put these things on the, the sort of higher bits of ground that stayed out of the wet so that when you were working the fields up on the, on the high ground, which to you and me was about... 10 foot above sea level, <laughs> you'd find stuff like that. And yeah. bog oaks, obviously, they, they come in the black peat. 
See how he's revealing more of his soul. Now, in the latest catalogue that we're producing, it's a collaborative one, and there's going to be lots of facts, things to discover about certain members of the team. And one of Farmer Phil's facts is that he wanted to be a vet. But there's one member of the team that failed to give any facts (laughs) to discover about himself, and that member of the team is called Richard, who wrote me a little note saying he'd rather not give anything away and uh, so here was his tips and guess what they were dear listener they were all tips on how to avoid buying products from wiggly wigglers (laughs) how to make a birdseed scoop out of some such piece of rubbish how to recycle a can into a can of worms or something so i haven't put them in it won't won't matter because i think we probably know rich well enough to Uh, to have a fairly good guess at at 10 aspects of his past so that we'll just have our version of 10 things you didn't know about see you could just make things up about me which is what you do anyway And now then, Rich, tell us about sage before we find out about blue tongue. Sage. Well, this is something else, I guess, that's uh, something that's relatively easy to grow. We've always had problems with growing sage at home because it, it, it tends to go woody. So I'm not sure whether it's a bit like lavender where you need to cut it down hard every year in order to stop it going woody. We've got fantastic sage. It grows huge, doesn't is. it? But it goes yeah. in the middle, but it goes woody in the middle. I'm not Does sure. Does it matter? Sort of, and I don't think it matters, but it takes up a massive amount of space. Oh, yeah. It doesn't matter so much out in that garden here, but I'm wondering if people have a relatively small herb garden and, they, and the space is at a premium. That Keep they, chopping they, yeah, it. Yeah, I wonder if it's just an idea to cut it back every year. But sage is beautiful. Now, there's some nice little tidbits here that, uh, that I thought were particularly interesting apparently if you get your harvest your sage leaves and drizzle olive oil over them and pop them into the fridge then you've got a fantastic tasting oil it really intensifies the, the flavor of the oil so a nice bit of sage oil if you freeze your sage then again that intensifies the uh, the flavor of the herb so consequently if you're using frozen sage for cooking then i think you need to sort of adjust the uh, the quantities accordingly and another little really interesting tidbit. Apparently, the Chinese became completely enamoured of French sage tea. Have you ever drunk anything like that? You want to do your sage. different flavoured teas, aren't you? No, it's a burger... How do you say this, Michael? Bergamot that's in Earl Grey, which I absolutely adore. Right. But I can't imagine sage, can you? Mm, no, I can't. I just can't. But no, I don't like any of those flavoured teas. I do, I'm just kind of into my English breakfast. And <laughs> <What's> that? <laughs> Class. Uh, but, Michael's just told me, bergamot is in suntan cream too. Do you know what bergamot looks like? No. Do you? No. No idea. If you know, listener, what bergamot looks like, or if you'd like to send us a picture, we would love to see. Thank you. Farmer Phil, blue tongue update, please. Dun, dun, dun! Well, really, for us, the blue tongue update is that the government have done nothing constructive about it. Um, We have got ourselves to a position where we can exist for another month. But I discovered another regulation that I didn't know the other day, that you're not allowed to transport a cow when she's more than 90% pregnant. So my first comment was, what does 90% Mm. pregnant mean? (laughs) interesting, isn't it? Does that that mean 90% along the term of the pregnancy? Well, we came to it, but I thought it was a typically government way of putting it. Rather than say, after eight months pregnancy or whatever, you're not supposed to transport them. But at the same time, it's their own fatuous regulations on blue tongue between England and Wales that are stopping me moving the cattle when they should be moved. And so at the end of the day, they're forcing me down the route of either moving them illegally 
or moving them when they're in their last month of pregnancy, which I don't like doing either. And it's just ridiculous. And I discovered the other day that the so-called EU regulation that means we're under these restrictions, our farm isn't even in it. Right. That they just decided it would be as easy to include all of Herefordshire than to have just a circle drawn with a compass. So they, they went out to the border. And I, I just think the whole thing is ridiculous. And until or unless somebody addresses it, they've got stock out there being moved illegally by people desperate because their farm straddles the border or they've got businesses either side of the border. Yeah. Apparently there is a mechanism to get a derogation so that you know if you've got welfare reasons for needing to move stock or whatever, you can have a derogation. That derogation is assessed by the powers that be in London and they've so far rejected every application for a derogation without specifying the reason. Do you think he thinks it's absolutely ridiculous? I do, I do. I, I think do it too. Um, are the cattle in for the winter? What's the story? The cattle are glory? in for the winter. Most of them here, some of them down at Campston. We've, we've had two calve early and we don't really understand why we've had two calve early because as far as we know they were nowhere near the, any of the bulls. But somehow they've managed it, and calves that look fit and well. So the virgin birth. All's well yeah. that That's ends it. well. It's so don't topical. You get, sometimes you get those with animals, don't you? Occasionally, uh, don't a virgin uh, birth. Uh, don't sheep have pregnancies that are kind of not associated with having mated? Uh, Rich, I, th- I think probably you ought to have paid a bit more attention <laughs> when you were right, at the stop old the uh, podcast. I'm sure, I'm sure biology. Have to go into something the birds and about, bees now. Yeah. Oh, no, I, so I'm sure I heard something about sheep. Uh, I don't know. I mean, perhaps it's just uh, something that's sat in my psyche. But something about sheep not having mated and having their lambs. Uh, you know, I don't know whether they can hold their the embryo in their body. It doesn't develop for a period. I don't know. No idea. <laughs> <laughs> Farmer Phil. I I I, I there, think there's a bull next door. Is it? I think. Well, I don't know. It might Let's have been. Let's solve it, the it mystery may or here may not have been a bull calf. I, I've got to consult my records to discover whether there was a particularly forward young bovine in the same bunch who got cracking but my problem is that I've got cattle here at Blakemere that are not due to calve until May June next year that I want to go to Campston to bring back the cattle who are due to calve in February so I can calve them here rather than 25 miles away and that's where the blue tongue regulations they stop me taking cattle from England to Wales for reasons that, as far as we can see, are purely political. But it means that we've got heavily pregnant cattle 25 miles away, which may or may not start calving, and obviously the the difficulties of dealing with them at 25 miles distance is a welfare problem. Mm. You know, I can't get there quick enough to deal with a problem, assuming anybody sees the problem. So... You'd all thought we got it in for bloody, did you? (laughs) But there was this call that Rachel brought in and the headline goes like this. It's a pity, says Robin Page. Now, we've met Robin Page on a podcast near you previous. Robin's been in, hasn't he? That the reality aspect of television does not extend to wildlife programmes, where only a distorted, sanitised picture of nature is portrayed. And I suppose he's talking about the spring watches and the Alan Titchmarsh programmes, where actually one goes around and looks in a positive way at wildlife. Yes. Well, what's your view on it, Rich? 
Well, I think there's, there's, there are elements of, uh, of truth in what Robin Page says. I mean, I think that I, I strongly disagree with a lot of uh, what he says and, and thinks, in fact. But, uh, you know, <laughs> what, I, what I don't want to do is suddenly fall into a, a trap where I appear to be uh, dissing uh, Robin Page. <laughs> or dissing <laughs> bloody. Or dissing bloody. But I, I think, um, Ro- well, Robin Page, I, you know, is, is, is quite an endearing character. I think there, there are instances where you don't warm to certain characters. And yes, as far but as Bill Oddie's concerned, that's my feeling, you know, towards Bill Oddie. So it's a kind of fairly specific Are you back to Bill Oddie? I want really. to talk about the but subject. the reason that we wanted, the reason we brought Bill Oddie up in the first place was because of this article, wasn't it? Yeah. That was, the, that was it. To put it into context, was because of what Robin Page had said about how he feels about the wildlife images portrayed by TV presenters like Bill Oddie and Alan Titchmarsh. But the thing is, though, by what he's saying, you know, if you had a reality TV show about wildlife, it'd be pretty steady, wouldn't it? Without a bit of comedy and a bit of, you know, speeding the job up, you know. Watching a bird's make a bird's nest at bird's nest making speed would be as bad as Big Brother. I've read parts of the article and I'm sort of listening to the, the bloody debate with some interest, but my view is that the countryside as we see it is basically there as a result of and because of agriculture and what we do within the countryside. And I'm all for anybody, whoever they are, who is enthusiastic about the countryside. But in recent years, we have seen measures come forward to so say preserve things or change things. And almost without exception, they have proved to be a much more complicated subject than just changing a piece of habitat or whatever, that they've had knock-on effects which aren't necessarily positive. So there is the possibility now that people are saying that if the government go ahead with a badger cull, which I'm not particularly in favour, that the fox population will explode. These balances are very complicated and that they shouldn't be changed very rapidly. Sort of prior to 20 years ago... They'd evolved over a couple of hundred years. That balance has to include man and what man does to it, but it was a sort of balance and it, it was reasonably static. You change something and it all goes wrong. And this oversimplification of the media or some sections of it, that by looking at this particular reason is why such and such a species is not doing well, it, it's oversimplification and it gives the wrong view in my mind. So yeah, that in that yeah. respect, I agree with Robin Page. Look, the thing is, the reason that we are doing this podcast in the whole first place, have we ever agreed with the conventional media? I don't think so, Chunky. Yeah, do you think that I've enjoyed ground force over the years? No way, Jose. I have. Have you? <laughs> but the thing is, of course our voice isn't being heard from the countryside. That's why we're sat on this sofa making this podcast giving up our time every week to get out there and shout. And the thing that I think Robin Page has missed out entirely is that it's absolutely fine for Bill Oddie to carry on in his own sweet way, but we've got the chance to say what we think. And so that's what we will do. And we will carry on being awkward. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) There you are. I I thought that's what I was just sort of saying. Oh. Was uh, it? (laughs) <laughs> I think there are two situations here. There are, there are problems with some of the things that your staunch traditional farmer might have in some of the things that he feels and expresses. You know, you've got that kind of... I, I've, I know I've talked this about this before, it's like these anachronistic ways of vermin control and things like that that we've got to get away from. What do you mean? Well, the um, bullfinch, for instance, one of, the, one of the reasons that it's declined dramatically over the last few years is that sparrowhawk populations have 
have increased so much. Bullfinches are very vulnerable, you know, they stick, stick out like a sore thumb, really, and they're steady little birds, so they get Peachy knocked out colour. all the time. Yeah. Would people think that kestrels get killed by sparrowhawks? I think they probably don't. They absolutely do. Do they? They do. Now, kestrels are, are significant. I often watch a kestrel outside my... There's a beautiful little male at the moment at, at home, and I watched him on the weekend taking voles from the bank below the house, you know, playing a, a vital part in the, in the ecology of those bankside slopes, really. Now... If I lose that kestrel, then in many respects, the loss of that kestrel is more ecologically significant than the loss of the sparrowhawk. And what's happened is that because raptors, like sparrows, haven't been controlled by some of the uh, anachronistic pasts like you know, the, the gamekeepers used to do when, before they were protected and keep them down, their populations have exploded. Now, I don't know what the answer is. I don't think sparrowhawks should be killed, I have to say that. And I think that some human intervention is important, but... I don't quite know what the answers are, but what the media portray, what wildlife programmes portray, is that all is at harmony. You know, it's all lovely and, and rosy and the countryside is very romantic, but in fact the countryside is red in tooth and claw. You know, there are, there are lots of conflicts going on all the time. Well, and isn't it that... The most important is to be able to appreciate the value of all those conflicts. Don't you think it's because we've stepped away from our role and we're pretending that by stepping out from it and conserving it all, everything will be lovely, but secretly we know that what goes with that is a responsibility. Yeah, I think that there's a place for, for gamekeeping, but gamekeeping should be along the lines of biodynamics, if you like. So create an environment that's suitable to growing on pheasants, game birds and things like that without killing some of the predatory species, without killing owls and without killing sparrowhawks and, and buzzards and things like that that used to happen years ago. And that fortunately, it, it happens rarely these days. Farmer Phil's jumping up and down on my right. But of course, that, that is the key problem that we face. That in times gone by, the gamekeeper, if he had a buzzard who learned how to take pheasants or, or whatever, or was a pain, he got rid of that one buzzard. He didn't set out to obliterate all buzzards because buzzards eat rabbits and, and the, gamekeeper, the same gamekeeper would have to go and control the rabbits around the farms. It was an all-inclusive job. Yeah. The problem now is that having imposed regulations to protect all these things, that that has engendered the feeling within the countryside that if you ever had the chance, because buzzards eat pheasants, no ruling body could say that buzzards can't be protected anymore because there would be people who would go out and try and eradicate them. The same with badgers. It's very difficult to go back to the, the time when badgers aren't protected because there will be people who will try and eradicate them completely. Absolutely. Just because of the legislation that's, that's gone on. And it's, it's this destruction of the balance and the failure to recognise that humans are part of the environment. The environment isn't just the animals and the, the wildlife and plants that are out there. Humans are part of it. There's very few, if any, parts of the British Isles which are not affected by human intervention. Therefore, they are part of the story and always will be. You can't go back. Robin Page says that he saw shots of um, badgers on spring watch and it looked like they were eating peanuts and the commentary suggested they were worms. So what about the Freedom of Info Information Act when he asked the BBC? Well, the first thing was that that doesn't apply to programme making. So anyway, BBC uh, television said the spring watch production team does feed peanuts to badgers and went on to say... With regard to Spring Watch Night Shift on the 31st of May, in which there were live sequences of badgers feeding after recent rain, they were clearly seen foraging in low vegetation. In Britain, earthworms are a staple part of the badger's diet and are easiest to find and unearth in damp soil. 
Though worms were not actually seen in these close-ups, the production team felt that the opening generic contextual commentary was appropriate when it said, because of the rain they are out in force hunting for worms. I think this means that yes, the budgers were, eating, were hunting for worms, but they were in fact eating peanuts. So his problem also is that um, we are encouraging false scenes of wildlife. But to me, that is television. And, you know, folk are well aware that, um, you know, you need to feed to attract wildlife into that area. I've got no problem with that. Have you? No, I don't think I've got any problem with that at all. Sometimes it needs to be, you know, in many respects, it's much more valuable to have enthusiastic natural history TV presenters drawing animals in under, under false pretenses so that the, the, you know, the, the populace can appreciate the, the beauty of those creatures. But it would be to have nothing at all. In the same way, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, is hardly an accurate definitive study of human behaviour in the Australian jungle, is it? So viewers are not stupid, in my view, that they are more than able to distinguish between what is right and wrong. I think, right, I think well, what we need is, is probably, uh, the bottom line is we need some TV presenters that are as quintessentially professional as Alan Titchmarsh. The way he portrays the English countryside is beautiful, albeit slightly romantic. I mean, obviously, the problem that Robin Page has is that it is too romantic. You know, the countryside isn't all that it's, uh, uh, that it's made out to be on those programmes. But for the viewer, you know, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, perhaps what should happen is there should be a sort of flip side of the coin. So perhaps to look at certain elements of the, of the, you know, of the, uh, of the programme making and the dynamics of what goes on in the countryside a little bit more closely. Well, isn't that why we had the calf's post-mortem? Isn't that why we're here? It's us. We're supposed to do the balance because we are the people that are in the countryside, uh, I reckon. Precisely. Move on, darlings. Now, we've had Monty's Wormcast, a weekly fact on worms. Then we had Monty's Pigcast, a weekly fact on... Pigs? Very well <laughs> done, <laughs> Richard. Yeah, look, it took me to think about that. Yes, and now we have Monty's Farmcast. Farmer Phil, a weekly fact on... Farming. Here we go, Monty. Bring it on. Montycast, a weekly fact on farming. Before milking machines were introduced, the dairy farmer could milk five to six cows an hour. Thank you, Monty. Now, just before we go and have our mince pies... Oh, yes. Rich, your photos are in a new fish book, which is coming in oh, very yes. soon. Then we've got some... Yes, that was quite fun. I got some uh, photographs. Well, not too many, but a picture of a perch and a picture of a zander in uh, Hugh Fernie and Nick Fisher's new book, uh, appropriately called Fish. Original. Mm. Signed copies? And we've got set ten signed copies from both Nick and Hugh. Yeah. So, uh, so, uh, I think some lucky customers are going to be able to snap those up. Now, if you're listening on your new iPod for Christmas, isn't it great having an iPod? Oh, I bet you wish you had an iPod touch like me. <laughs> Have you got an iPhone? Oh, I hate you, hate you, hate you. Anyway, um, if you'd like to subscribe, you've got this, you've downloaded it, it's successfully with you. You're wandering around, you're probably jogging, thinking about your New Year's resolutions. You're probably full of turkey and are glad to escape. If you want to subscribe, go back to iTunes and click the subscribe button. Now, next week, we have a very special show. We have a private viewing of Roy Strong's garden. It's an extra special moment but if you don't want 50 minutes of Roy Strong's garden, miss it out. But if you do, 
Rich, you had a wonderful day. I did. I had, had a wonderful time. And Sir Roy Strong was kind enough to show me around his garden, the Lasket, which we mentioned is in Herefordshire. A kind of formal garden, but nonetheless interesting garden. And um, I haven't listened to this show yet. And Michael's edited it down a little bit. I don't think he's taken too much out because um, it, Michael seemed to think it was about 50 minutes long. And I, I seem to remember that it was being something like 55 minutes on the recording when I left, thinking, oh, that's far too long. And how are we going to get that down? But it'll make for some interesting listening. Different to our usual banter here, a little bit more serious, but nonetheless quite lovely. We have to leave you now because today is the Wiggly Wigglers Christmas party. It was supposed to be in the farmhouse, but the kitchen's not finished. So it's down to the village hall for all of us to indulge in full Christmas dinner as uh, prepared by Neil Dillon, who was in fact... Farmer Phil's prodigy. He was his, <laughs> you were his Prince's Trust advisor when he started his vi- business all those years ago. I was. It must be some years ago now too. Yeah, it's, it's several years ago. He's a successful businessman now, and he will be doing our catering. And I do hope that he has got homemade sage and onion stuffing, else I will have to do what? something. <laughs> Throw a mince pie at him. (laughs) Anyway, have a lovely Christmas all. I do hope you've enjoyed the show. Bye. Bye from me. Oh, P.S. Joe says, I love Bill. In brackets, Oddie. Bye.